Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. If you're trying to find that, it's close to the end of the Old Testament. That's about the best hint I can give you right now. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And then I'll also be reading from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Very familiar passage about the triumphal entry of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 8 through 9. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Z- uh, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's bow together in prayer. The Lord, open our hearts to the truths of your word today. Help us to understand the coming of Christ is the greatest conqueror we have ever known. But he did not conquer like many on this earth who conquered lands and people. Jesus conquered death and sin. Thank you for this truth. Help us to understand how important this truth is to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're actually going to be comparing two different conquerors. If you look at Zechariah, and the reason why I even found Zechariah is because of this passage in Matthew, in verse 5, it actually has the quote directly from Zechariah, uh, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. But like a person that doesn't have anything else to do, I read all the scriptures around it to see what all it meant. You know, I didn't want to take anything out of context. I realized that verse 9 is somewhat taken out of context by itself. If you read Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 especially, what you're going to find is the description of a conqueror coming through and conquering nations and major cities all around Jerusalem. And then 
when you get to verse 8, it says that he will pass by and then return. He's going to pass by Jerusalem and then return. Well, who is Zechariah talking about? Well, Zechariah actually wrote uh, this passage, this prophecy, in about 520 B.C. And the one that he's writing about, prophesying about, would be Alexander the Great, who did his conquering around 320 B.C. So he's prophesying about something that would not happen for about 200 years. Now, Daniel also prophesied about uh, this one who would be coming. Daniel knew from the visions that God had given him all the different powers that would be rulers over God's people. He already knew about Egypt. He already knew about Assyria, who had come in and conquered the northern kingdom of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom and taken the remnant captive. And then Daniel actually lived during the time when Babylon came and captured the southern kingdom of Judah. He was actually in captivity as he wrote his books. And so Daniel had this vision, and it described all these different rulers that would oversee or over uh, that would rule over Jerusalem, God's people. And so Daniel, later we see the prediction of another power rising up. It would be the Medo-Persian Empire that basically overthrew Babylon and inherited the captives that they had. It was under Cyrus the Great, uh, one of their rulers, that he permitted some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And it took many years for them to do this, but they finally rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the city walls around Jerusalem. And so we're going through time, but Daniel also saw two other powers that would come. One he saw depicted as a flying leopard, and that basically depicted Alexander the Great. And it shows him this Greek empire forming and being rulers over Jerusalem. And so Daniel was able to see this. He also predicted that Rome would one day uh, become that next great power that would overthrow and uh, rule over Israel. So isn't it amazing that back in Zechariah's day, about 520 B.C., he was able to see what was going to happen about 200 years later when Alexander the Great would come. Well, let's look a little bit about Alexander the Great. We know that after the Persian Empire, uh, that Alexander and his armies overthrew them. And by doing so, they basically inherited whatever uh, lands that the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered. But he had to kind of go back through and make sure that they were his, that nobody had made the assumption that they had been overthrown and now they were free. And so he went back through and began kind of reconquering many of these territories. And so Zechariah chapter 9 depicts him going through the northern areas above Jerusalem, reconquering those areas, and then he bypassed Jerusalem and went to the southern areas around Jerusalem and reconquered those like around Gaza and Tyre. And so then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, what does he do when he gets to Jerusalem? Well, the scriptures really don't tell us exactly what happens. There's some allusion to it, but there was a historian named Josephus, and many give great credit to his accuracy of what took place in the biblical times. Here's what he says took place 
when Alexander the Great and his armies returned to Jerusalem. The night before Alexander and his army were to arrive in Jerusalem, the high priest had a dream in which God told him to adorn the city, tell the people to dress in white garments, and open the gates to their visitor. The high priest and the other priests wore, uh, would head the procession dressed in their holy robes. This they did, and Alexander was so impressed that he welcomed them in peace. The high priest told Alexander about Daniel's prophecies concerning him, and Alexander even offered sacrifices to Jehovah in the temple. Uh, thus the city and the people were spared. So basically, Zechariah is depicting somewhat what happened with Alexander the Great and his armies fighting in the north, conquering the land, bypassing Jerusalem, coming back to Jerusalem. And so we look at his great rule, and he expanded a huge kingdom. But we also see another conqueror in the same passage in Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this victor, this conqueror, would be victorious over sin and death instead of over cities and nations. So, Let's look at Jesus. Zechariah had just prophesied what would take place 200 years later with Alexander the Great. And then we get to that verse 9, and he is predicting what will take place or prophesying about what will take place 550 years later with the coming of Christ. Does that help you understand that God knows the future? That he is God, he knows all things that there is nothing that will ever surprise God. Not only was he using Zechariah to depict what would happen 200 years later, he's also using Zechariah to depict what will take place 550 years later. Well, he says, Behold, your king is coming. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he did everything possible to keep people from calling him king. If you remember, he, he was up on the hillside and he had just fed all these multitudes of people and they were crowding around him wanting to proclaim him as king and he left them. He did not want that to take place, at least not at that time. There's only a specific time that Jesus allowed that and that was the day that he entered Jerusalem that we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before his resurrection. And so we see that only then did Jesus allow anyone to call him king? And he allowed them, the, the people uh, gathered around that day. They, they took off their coats and laid them on the road. They went and cut branches out of the trees and laid them across the road. And they were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we look and we see Jesus did not rebuke them. One time that he did not rebuke them. But Jesus did not enter as a military ruler. He did not enter with an army. He came as one who would conquer the guilt and the penalty of their sin, not the people themselves. So he gave them victory over Satan, death, and hell instead of over a foreign enemy. 
Now, Zechariah describes this king. Behold your king. Jesus was coming to them as king, but not as an earthly king. See, Jesus never had a palace. He never had a throne on earth to sit on. He never had an army. He never had staff. He never had uh, dignitaries that he sent forth here and there to do his bidding. He was not what we call an earthly king, but he was their king. Not an earthly king, but a heavenly king. And he was their spiritual king. See, he had won the victory over death and hell, the penalty of sin. He had not won the victory over enemies, foreign. So what we see here is that Jesus was the one and the only conqueror that really mattered. He was the one who conquered what they could not conquer themselves, what no man on earth could ever conquer, sin and the penalty of it. So we look and we see that he would simply receive the, the praise of the common people of that day. They were loving him. If you go back a little bit in the New Testament, you see that Jesus had just left Mary and Martha after having raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there were people following behind him coming from that little village and they were shouting Hosanna. But the people who were already in Jerusalem were also shouting Hosanna. They had heard that this man Jesus was coming. They had heard the miracles that he had done. They may not have fully understood that he truly is God in the flesh, but they were still praising him. They were worshiping him for who he was and what he had done. But Jesus' kingdom would not be here on earth. His kingdom would have no end. It would be an eternal heavenly kingdom. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, sounds kind of pretentious, doesn't it? But that's not how Jesus was. Jesus, simply God in the flesh, God with us. Our minds struggle to comprehend that. How could God that we cannot see, who is spirit, how could he dawn flesh and live among us? Well, Jesus did exactly that. But we see that he is worthy of all of our allegiance, all of our worship, all of our praise, and all of our surrender. And no matter what other people on this earth have announced themselves as king, they're just common men. And one day they would be overthrown by someone greater than themselves. But Jesus is the king of kings. No one could ever and will ever conquer Jesus, for he is the one and only true king. See, Jesus is all-powerful, and he overcomes all powers. There are no powers that can overcome our Lord Jesus. He is king of all, and there are no other kings, because all others are mortal men. Zechariah, after he says, behold your king, he says, and he is just. We, we don't really use that word a whole lot. We really don't use righteous a whole lot unless we're in church. But Jesus was righteous. That means he was without sin. He was perfect, holy, just. And he is the only one that fit the bill for God to use to die in our place. 
See, no one else could to do that because all else have sinned. No one who has sinned can die for the sins of others. Only the one who had not sinned can die in the place of those who have sinned. That is what Jesus did for us. The perfect Lamb of God came to die in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. So no longer would man have to try to offer a blood sacrifice like they had done in the uh, temple in Jerusalem for, for hundreds of years, time after time after time, because it really did not take away their sin, it covered their sin with a blood sacrifice for time. But Jesus died sacrificing and shedding his blood for all mankind, for all sins, for all time. And so Jesus came and offered that perfect sacrifice for sin once for all. And Zechariah also says he is endowed with salvation. Now salvation means that you're going to receive something that you don't deserve. Salvation is having your debt of sin canceled, where it no longer is on your record. Salvation is faith in the one who can save you from your sins. See, even before Jesus came, salvation was based on belief in God's promise. The Bible says in a very simple passage, Abraham believed God and was counted unto him as righteousness. That means God accepted Abraham because of his faith, his belief in God's promise. And that's the way it's been throughout the ages. When Jesus came, that promise became known. It was no longer a mystery of what this promised Messiah would be. It was now flesh and blood before them. And for us now, we have the history. We know the evidence that he has come. He has died. He has risen for our sins. He has overcome death. So we look and we see that he is endowed with salvation. And Jesus is the only one with the power to save others. You and I cannot save anyone, not spiritually. You may could push somebody out from an approaching car and die in their place and you save their life, but you didn't save their soul. Only Jesus can do that. Then it also says in Zechariah 550 years earlier that he is humble. Humble really does not depict very many conquerors, does it? I would say it probably doesn't depict any of them. Most of them are pretty arrogant, braggadocious. They're very prideful in who they are and what they have accomplished. But Zechariah says, and he is humble humble. He's humble like a lamb led to slaughter. We look and we see that after describing Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it's kind of hard for us to imagine him as being humble, but he is, and he has been. That's why he sent his disciples to go and find the colt of a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem. How do you think Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem. I think he came in on a little bitty donkey where his feet were probably almost dragging the ground. I don't think so. But Jesus did. Why? He's proving to the people, I am not what you thought I would be. 
You thought that I would be a military ruler. You thought I would be this powerful person here on earth that would overthrow Rome and their power and their authority over you. That's not who I am. I am not a military leader. I'm not riding in on a blazing white stallion. I'm coming to you on the little coat of a donkey, humble, because there's one thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to lecture you. I'm not going to brag about my powers. I'm going to die for you. That's why I came. That's the only reason why I came, is to die for you. So he, he humbled himself like a lamb, led to slaughter. He knew that as he entered into Jerusalem, that by the end of that week, he would be nailed to a cross. That's where he would die. And so he set the perfect example for us of humility. But Jesus came to love, to forgive, to save, and to heal, and to set free our lives from the penalty of sin. So let's take just a moment and compare these two conquerors. Alexander the Great and Jesus. I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem on a white steed, something majestic, maybe even with its own armor, but more than likely if he was coming in peace, it had all this plumage and all this uh, paraphernalia even on the stallion that came. So he came looking like a king, looking like a victor, a conqueror. Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey. Picture the two. Humanly speaking, which one would you follow? The one who showed power and authority, right? Honestly. Instead of the one that looks weak. Then we look at Alexander. When Alexander came into Jerusalem, a mighty army followed him in. This mighty army was basically considered to be undefeatable. They went across a vast region, conquering cities and nations and becoming what we call the great Greek empire. If you know where Greek is, where Greece is, over there closer to Italy, if you go east, he conquered from that area all the way to what we know today as India. Then he went south into Africa all the way through Egypt, conquered all the Middle East. It was all under his reign. And that army that followed him into Jerusalem were the very men that had conquered those regions and were still conquering. Jesus, do you see an army following him into Jerusalem? He had a ragtag group of men that he called his disciples. Fishermen, tax collectors, not the cream of the crop, definitely not military type guys. But yet, those men after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they turned the world upside down. Do you see the 
differences? The people came to Alexander and they bowed before him out of fear because of his authority and what he could do to them if they resisted. Even the people in Jerusalem came out and welcomed him. They didn't come out with spears, arrows. They didn't come out with an army. They came out knowing, knowing that he had already been predicted by God through Hezekiah and Daniel. They knew that God had elected Alexander the Great to do exactly what he was doing. And they honored God by honoring Alexander the Great. They didn't bow to him. They showed him the respect that he deserved. When Jesus came in, where were the high priest and all the other priests? They were conspiring. How can we kill this man? It was the common people that met him with their coats and their palm branches on the ground, shouting out Hosanna to him. It wasn't the people who should have recognized him as the Messiah. So Jesus came. People didn't cower before him. They praised him. But those who should have known him as Messiah were conspiring against him. Alexander brought judgment against all who opposed him. Jesus came and brought salvation, even to his enemies. Alexander probably, we don't know, but more than likely, he probably gave a, an oration about his great victories, his accomplishments, all that he and his army had already accomplished and done. Jesus, as he approached the city, looked over it and wept. Found in Luke chapter 19, verse 14. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Pretty, diff pretty good contrast between these two men. What kind of person are you following in life? Think about that a minute. Who piques your interest? Who do you want to follow in life? Do you want to follow somebody that people admire, that people look up to, people who have power and clout in society? Sometimes you may follow that type of person, see what you can get out of having some type of relationship with them. You know, if I'm friends with this person and they have this kind of clout and power, maybe I'll get something in return. Or maybe you follow them out of fear. If I show them any kind of disrespect by not following them, no telling what they could do to me, my family. So sometimes we follow out of fear. There are a lot of human people that people follow. I don't understand all the social media, all these influencers on TikTok and all the different places. It's hard for me to understand that somebody can actually sit in front of their little camera and do stupid stuff and have millions and millions of people watch them do stupid stuff. And because they have millions of people watching them, they're monotonizing. They're actually getting paid for the ads they put on these little sites. 
Have we lost our minds to follow people like that? Yet, our mindset as human beings are, let's follow the trend, let's be hip, let's be cool, let's be whatever is going on in our day-to-day instead of, let's get back to the basics. Jesus, he's the only one worth following. He is the only one worthy of praise and adoration. There should never be another idol in our lives. We need to allow Jesus to be the front, center, focus of all. You know, there's some powerful people in the world today. They don't need to be worshipped. They cannot do anything for you that's eternal. Jesus can. He already has. He died in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven of your sins and cleansed of your unrighteousness and be a part of the family of God and receive his gift of eternal life. That's all he did for you. Pretty big deal. No one else could do that. There is no other person on this earth that can do what Jesus did. What idols are in your life today? Who humanly do you admire greatly? Who do you follow? Do you follow Jesus with that same passion? Do you spend as much time following Jesus as you do that person on Facebook or wherever? How much of us do we give to the one who is most important, Jesus? He's the great conqueror. He conquered sin and death, Satan and hell for you and for me. He deserves all honor, glory, and praise. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, we come to you. Lord, first of all, confessing that we've allowed far too many others, Lord, to influence our lives. People that don't have the right to do so, but we have allowed them to do it. Lord, forgive us. Lord, turn our hearts away from the idols of this world and help us to turn back to you. To be the only one worthy of our praise and honor, worship. Lord, help us to realize that you truly are King of kings and Lord of lords, but not in an earthly sense. Lord, it's all spiritual. You have saved us from our sins, something that we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, you have given us an inheritance to be a child of God, to inherit your kingdom in heaven. Lord, may we worship you. Lord, guide us as we respond to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.